right, this is Ellen Weatherford, and I am here with our brand new friend, Dr. Catherine McDonald. Say hi, Dr. McDonald. Hi. Hey. So we have been chatting for a minute here, and you study sharks and teach other people how to study sharks. And I'm really, really excited to talk about that because we haven't really focused a lot on sharks here on Just the Us, but I think that they're underappreciated and could really use some public education. So I'm excited to talk sharks. So if you could, I would love it if you could kind of introduce yourself and give us a little bit of an idea of who you are. Um, my name is Dr. Catherine McDonald, as you just said, but please, Catherine. And uh, I am a interdisciplinary marine scientist uh, working in South Florida and the Southern Caribbean, mostly on coastal sharks and rays. Together, we call sharks and rays elasmobranchs. Awesome. My work is really varied. Uh, I'm interested in how human communities interact with shark populations. So I study fisheries in the Southern Caribbean. And I'm also interested in uh, deepening our knowledge of shark life histories, especially for understudied smaller species of shark like bonnethead or black noses that don't tend to attract the amount of research attention that the big guys do. Yeah, because I think that when a lot of people think about sharks, they think about the big ones. Um, so they think about the great white shark or maybe even like the whale shark or the, the big guys. So can you introduce us a little bit to the kind of coastal species of sharks that you're looking at down there in South Florida? Absolutely. So people tend to think about sharks as apex predators, right? Thanks, Shark Week. <laughs> uh, and as a shark scientist, you both appreciate and don't appreciate Shark Week in some ways, because I think it drives a lot of people's passion for these animals. Tons of my students say they grew up watching Shark Week and it helped, you know, drive them towards a, a career choice in marine conservation. But on the other hand, you tend to see the same species get most of the attention every single year. So my guys are not apex predators for the most part. Usually they're what we call mesopredators, um, which means that if you think about the food chain as a pyramid, apex predators are at the very top and mesopredators are just below them. So mesopredators can be eaten by apex predators, but eat things below them. Uh, so usually consumers, or sometimes you have multiple layers of mesopredators. And then obviously we remember at the very bottom of that pyramid is primary productivity, right? Is plants uh, creating energy using photosynthesis and sunlight. The reason it's shaped like a pyramid is that only a certain amount of energy is conserved at each level, right? Uh, usually 10 to 15%. So you need a lot more plants than you have animals that eat plants in order to have a balanced food web, in order to have a healthy ecosystem. That means that by biomass, sharks are towards the top, which means that naturally their populations should be smaller than their prey populations. But a lot of times they eat the same things that we do. And so in some cases we're competing with them for food or they're really specialized. And so if our activities or pollution affect availability of food for them, they may not make it. So we see some shark species adapting really well to that. Tiger sharks are sort of famous generalists, right? They evolved to be very specialized to eat turtle. But as turtle populations declined, they decided, well, I'm just going to go for it, anything. Whereas hammerheads are pretty specialized for rays and in places where you see ray population declines because of the way that they're laid out morphologically. They've got this big hammer in the front, right? And their mouth is kind of tucked away underneath. 
we know from studies of hammerhead feeding that they'll use that cephalofoil, which is what scientists call their hammer, to pin down rays and bite chunks out of their wings. Oh my gosh, I'd never heard that before. Really cool. But if you run out of rays, those adaptations make them less well-equipped to switching to some other prey items. Yeah. While we're on the topic of the hammerhead, this shape is kind of similar to the shape of the head of a bonnethead shark, right? Aren't they a little bit similar? Yeah, absolutely. Bonnetheads have a, a slightly compressed cephalofoil hammer, but the, the structure is similar. And that hammer serves a bunch of potential purposes, right? It's not just helpful for pinning down rays, although it is, but it also separates your eyes out, right? So it, that means that as you're moving your head side to side swimming, you're, it gives you a huge visual field. You can see almost all the way around you. It also means that sharks have something called ampullae of Lorenzini, which are tiny uh, pores that detect electromagnetic signals uh, that they can use to hunt. Hammerheads, because they have that nice spread out cephalofoil, can distribute those ampullae more widely than a shark that just has a little pointy snout in the front. And that makes it possible for them to swing their head kind of like a metal detector to try to locate rays that are buried in the sand that are trying to hide from them. And also, so most most fish, bony fish, which are what scientists call teleost fish, have what's called a swim bladder. And it's like a, a gas-filled balloon inside the body that they can inflate or deflate depending on how deep they are that keeps them neutrally buoyant so that they can just hang there in the water. Sharks don't have swim bladders, right? They rely on being cartilaginous instead of being bony, uh, which means that their skeletons are lighter. They rely on a big oil-filled liver. It can be up to a third of their body mass. Wow. And we all know if you pour oil into water, that oil's going to float. So as a way to help compensate for your mass. And in hammerheads in particular, their big pectoral fins, the fins on the sides of their body, and that big cephalofoil in the front helps give them lift and make them really hydrodynamic. So it reduces the energy required for them to swim because they're what we call ram ventilators, which means that they have to swim to breathe. So there are a bunch of species of shark that are ram ventilators. They have to swim all the time in order to keep breathing. And then there's other sharks that are called buccal pumpers that can kind of lie on the bottom and just use musculature sort of where their cheeks would be if they were people to keep water flowing over their gills while they're stationary. Okay. Yeah. I guess it's not exactly a myth, but it's also not a hundred percent true all of the time that like sharks can never stop moving. And that if they stop moving, they stop breathing. So I guess that's one of those things that's like, it's true in some cases, but not in all of them. Yeah, absolutely. It's true for great whites. It's true for hammerheads. It's true for any shark that's a ram ventilator, but there are a lot of sharks that can just lie on the bottom. But all sharks pretty much are negatively buoyant, which means that if they stop swimming, they sink. So sharks that can buccal pump can lie on the bottom and rest, but they can't hang in the water and rest uh, the way that fish that have swim bladders can. With one exception, and that's the sand tiger, you often see them in aquaria. So if you've ever been to an aquarium and been like, Catherine, you're wrong. I've seen sharks hanging in the water, not moving. It was probably a sand tiger. And they do that by uh, using their stomach like a swim bladder. They swim to the surface and swallow air to make themselves neutrally buoyant. Oh, wow. That's pretty interesting. That's crazy. I didn't know they were actually getting air from the 
air <laughs> outside of the water. That's really neat. So you mentioned that the sharks that you're looking at down off the coasts of South Florida are these coastal sharks that are a little bit smaller than the kind of apex predator sharks we're thinking of. So what eats <laughs> those smaller sharks? Is it just bigger sharks that eat them or do other things eat them too? It's mostly bigger sharks, but larger predatory fish are a potential threat to um, at least the smaller animals that I work with. So a, a good-sized barracuda could easily be a threat to a quite a small shark. Or there have been some cool studies out of places that have seals uh, that show that sometimes seals will eat blue sharks or other species of shark when they get the opportunity. So almost all juvenile sharks probably fall into that mesopredatory category where there are things that could eat them and things that they could eat. But the apex predators are really just like the big predatory guys. The largest shark I saw last year as part of my work was a little bit over 13 foot great hammerhead. Whoa. And the smallest was a 38 centimeter nurse shark and probably pretty young. She still had all her little spots and saddle markings on her. Oh, like what kind of size range are we looking at? Like what is the smallest shark? I think we all know about like the biggest shark, right? Like the whale shark being like a billion feet long. They're huge. But what about the smallest shark? I want to know about small sharks. <laughs> uh, there are definitely species that can fit in the palm of your hand as adults. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but the vast majority of sharks probably fall in the like couple feet range. So if, if I ask people at a public talk to like list shark species for me, I get a few weird ones, but I mostly get great white hammerhead bull shark, tiger shark. And they're not really very representative of sharks more broadly. There are more than 500 species of shark. There's over a thousand species of sharks and rays. When you think about them as being just one thing, it really limits your understanding of elasmobranchs as a group right? Because they are so incredibly diverse. You've got huge rays, you've got tiny little rays, you know, we work with yellow rays that are seven inches across, maybe. But you know, there are rays that are tremendous that have a 15 foot wingspan. So when we think about when public image thinks about sharks as being one kind of animal, it means that people have a lot of misperceptions around them. You know, go look up the pajama cat shark. That just sounds super adorable. Right? <laughs> Whoever named that shark did a fantastic job because I really want to cuddle it. Right. there, And there's tons of adorable cat sharks. Uh, I'm a big fan of horn sharks. I'm a big fan of Port Jackson sharks. If you, if you go and look them up, they don't look anything like the animals that you mostly see on Shark Week. And so I'm a huge fan of those big predatory sharks too. I think they're amazing. But it's helpful to remember that the process of evolution is really the process of solving problems and different species of shark have solved the wide variety of problems animals encounter in a variety of ways. And, and so it's really hard to generalize about them as a group, about everything from what their conservation status is to what the threats to them are, to what kinds of things they eat or how they interact with each other. It's, it's hugely variable. And so it's one of the reasons that shark conservation, there is no one size fits all solution, even as we all think it would be so much easier if we could only figure out like the one thing we have to do to keep sharks safe. 
you know, people don't do the same thing for mammal species, you know, like people don't tend to have the same sort of like broad generalizations for for mammals, you know, they don't say like, all carnivores, or all ungulates, like, we can be a lot more easy at differentiating between like mammal species or things that we can relate to. Um, but then when it comes to sharks, we're like, eh, they're sharks. <laughs> it's all of them. Yeah, absolutely. And people would never think to talk about grizzlies and polar bears as though they're the same, when in fact, those animals can hybridize and create fertile offspring. And yet species of shark that are extremely different from each other, people all the time will use the word shark and think they're talking about a species. But we're actually talking about eight different orders. We're talking about an incredibly diverse and variable group of animals. And we're still making new discoveries all the time. The math on this is something like we've discovered a new species of shark on average every two and a half weeks for about the last 10 years. And we still know very little about many deep sea species. So we don't honestly know what the true diversity of sharks is. And that's so impressive because they've been here longer than most of us animal species, right? They're like one of the oldest orders, I, I suppose. Is, is order the right word? They're, you know, one of the oldest types of animals in the world that like they've been here since before mammals even existed. So it's funny to me that we can lump them all together like that. But when it comes to mammals, we're so particular about them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and sharks are not just older than mammals, but older than trees. Wow, really? Mm -hmm. Older than Pangaea. Wow. Older than dinosaurs. And one of the most incredible things about them is that, in fact, if you look at these ancient sharks, some of them are pretty weird, but they're not like all that weird compared to deep sea sharks today. I mean, you look at them and, and many of them are still recognizably sharks. The body plan, the sort of adaptations, the structure People will talk about sharks as being ancient, as though that means that they're primitive, right? That the rest of us have made progress and sharks haven't. But the reality of it is more that they figured it out so early. They came up with something that worked so well that they really haven't had to change as much as the rest of us because they, they were already incredibly well adapted for a wide range of circumstances. It was not broke, so they did not fix it. Exactly. <laughs> and if anything, I feel like they should be getting credit for that. But instead, people tend to tend to assume that they're stupid or basic or primitive because they haven't had to make the kinds of sweeping changes that a lot of other groups of animals have. Yeah, that is a good segue into our ratings. So if this is your first time listening to this particular podcast, what we do is we review and rate usually species of animals, but we're not necessarily zeroing in on any particular species this week. So we give them a rating out of 10 in three categories. The first one being effectiveness, which is physical adaptations that let an animal do a really good job at doing the things it's trying to do, accomplishing its goals, solving its problems, things that are built into its body that make it really good at doing the stuff it's trying to do. So I guess if we wanted to kind of like, because we're not trying to generalize to all sharks in the world, but I guess if you were to give a rating specifically for like the sharks that you have studied, like your, your coastal sharks down in South Florida, uh, what kind of effectiveness rating would you give them? 14 out of 10. 14. <laughs> What's going on with these little guys? 
So it varies so much, which is one of the things I love about them. But everybody has figured out what they need to do to succeed in their particular niche and are crushing it. Sharks are so good at being sharks. It's insane. So in evolution, like to a certain degree, you use it or lose it, right? If if you have an ability and it doesn't actually help you, then in future generations, less and less is that ability going to persist. So, you know, we have nurse sharks that have these incredible little chemoreceptive barbells at the front of their faces that they use to feel around on the reef, find things that are worth suction feeding on and slurp it right up. And they don't rely on their eyes to hunt very much. And so we see that their eyes are, are much smaller, much less advanced, and that their vision just is not nearly as good as their friends who hunt midwater uh, or who use vision to locate prey. So every shark kind of invests as a species in the characteristics that help them succeed. And that varies a lot shark to shark, but all of them have done that. Bonnet heads are a really fun example because bonnet heads are, at least as far as I know, the only shark that we have identified as omnivorous. Interesting. <laughs> so bonnet heads rely a lot on crustaceans as a primary food source. They eat a lot of blue crabs, but always in their stomach contents, scientists would find seagrass. And they assumed, okay, they're consuming the seagrass incidentally, right? You're chasing a blue crab, you catch it, but you like also get a mouthful of grass as you're grabbing it. And what recent studies have shown just in the last few years is that they are consuming seagrass and it has nutritional significance to them, that um, they have almost comparable digestive efficiency to a juvenile green turtle uh, in consuming seagrass. And so seagrass is probably, especially during kind of lean times when crabs and fish are hard to find, a not meaningless component of bonnethead diet. And that's huge for us because pretty much to the best of my knowledge, all of our other sharks rely on eating other animals. They all fall in that mesopredatory level. Bonnetheads certainly aren't surviving eating nothing but seagrass, but they're the only shark that I know of that consumes it. That's really cool. I, I didn't even know that there was an omnivorous shark. Like I was pretty sure that they were all just straight chomping down on fishes and crabs and stuff all the time. But but then some of them, like you said, like the nurse shark that don't necessarily like chomp chomp, they more suck their food in. That reminds me a lot of like the bigger guys, right? Like the whale sharks and the basking sharks and stuff that kind of just like rather than um, being so focused on like chasing your prey down and using your sharp teeth to eat it, they just kind of like drift through the sea with their mouth open and just let the food flow into it. And I like that. <laughs> yeah, completely. That seems like an ideal lifestyle. Uh, sometimes people think that they're vegetarians, right? Because when when you think about that, you're, you're a little bit thinking about phytoplankton, right? So like little tiny plants in the ocean. Um, but those might be the base of the food web that whale sharks are relying on. But the thing that they're actually eating for the most part are are larger, but still really tiny animals. So they're filtering zooplankton and krill out of large, massive quantities of water that they're running through their mouths to get their nutrition. And it's an incredible adaptation. And, you know, they arrived at it by a, a different method than whales uh, so, you know, you think about baleen feeding whales, they they have sort of similar ecosystem roles in some ways, but they've come at it from different directions. So we we were talking about bonnet heads a second ago, and 
I wanted to share the only experience I have with bonnet heads. Um, and I didn't know it was a bonnet head because I, like probably many people, thought it was a baby hammerhead. But it wasn't until much later that I looked up and realized it was probably a bonnet head. It was, we were out on the beach in Jacksonville Beach and we were out flying kites like weird college kids do in the middle of the night. And I had my dog with me and she's a beagle. And we're walking down the beach and all of a sudden she takes off like she starts running and I have her on a leash and everything but this is not like her so I follow her it's pitch black we can't see anything but the dog is after something so I follow her and she takes us to a beached shark and at the time we thought it was a hammerhead but it was only like probably only like two feet long and I was so freaked out by it because I have a phobia of fish so I was like oh my gosh no thank you but Christian was with me and he said, um, have you ever touched a shark before? I said, no. He goes, what do you think it feels like? I'm like, I don't know, slimy and gross. He's like, you should try it. And I was like, no, just tell me what it feels like. He says, I'm not going to tell you because you need to touch it yourself and see what it feels like. And eventually I it, I did because curiosity got the better of me. And it was not what I expected at all. It was wild. It was sandpapery and rough, and it didn't feel like like rubbery at all. Do all sharks feel like that? So it varies a bit, but uh, what you were feeling there are what are called dermal denticles, which comes from uh, the Latin uh, and basically means tiny skin teeth. Skin teeth? Yeah. Wow. Great. <laughs> so the structure of sharks' denticles is the same really as the structure of their teeth, right? You've got like a little pulp and then you've got that pointy structure and it makes them incredibly hydrodynamic, right? They're very efficient swimmers. And it also provides them with a lot of protection against parasites, against glancing injury, um, because those denticles are extremely tough. But actually, if you feel them from, from the head towards the tail, they feel totally smooth. And if you feel them tail to head, they feel really rough because mm. you're, you're either going with those denticles, right, that are designed to let water flow very smoothly or against those denticles, in which case they can cut you up. Shark scientists talk about what we call shark burn. So if you're restraining a shark and it thrashes a bunch, uh, it can absolutely take layers of your skin off, uh, just like if it was sandpaper. Wow, that is a really good reason to not bother sharks. There's a lot of really good reasons <laughs> to not bother sharks. Because <laughs> you see a lot of like videos online, um, I feel like especially in the last couple of years of people like swimming with sharks, like snorkeling with sharks, and they're like petting them. Um, and that's making me not feel so great about petting them because you're just gently stroking their skin teeth. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in any time that you are accustoming a, a wild animal to being touched by people, you're harming it. Uh, and I think that people, people often think like, well, what I'm doing doesn't seem like it would be that big a deal. But that would only be true if you were the only person. So think about if, if everybody did what you do, would it hurt the animal? If that's true, then you probably shouldn't do it. And no one else should either. Touching sharks may make them think that humans are safe to be around uh, or approach. And that puts them at an increased risk for being fished. It may also mean that someone else gets injured. It may mean that you yourself get injured uh, every year. People decide to tug on nurse sharks tails while they're sleeping on the bottom and nurse sharks have really tiny teeth. They're not aggressive. But if you pull on their tail and they turn around and bite onto you, I really have very little sympathy. 
You brought that on yourself. <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, and you always want to have respect for wild animals. And one, you know, one thing I think people kind of struggle with in the ocean is equating it to their experiences on land. So there's tons of shark tourism that involves kind of like kneeling in a circle while somebody feeds sharks to kind of bring them close to people to take photos. And in some places that's contributed to conservation. So I'm not trying to say that like everything about it is wrong. But if you turn to somebody and you're like, would it be a good idea for everyone to kneel in a circle while a park ranger at Yellowstone fed a grizzly right in front of you? People get that that would be potentially dangerous, right? Like bringing a bear into a circle of people and being like, here's a snake. Like, <laughs> yeah, somebody might get hurt. And for whatever reason, some people definitely struggle to make the leap to ocean predators to understand that like, even as they're methods of feeding and behavior and lifestyle might be quite different than a bear. They occupy, in some cases, quite a similar ecological role. And you don't really need to be messing around with them. <laughs> you, you ain't got to be part of that. When you mentioned that they had what are essentially skin teeth, the thought that I had was that sharks have this reputation for being just tooth machines and that they have just so many ridiculous amounts of teeth, just layers and layers of teeth that are continually growing and all this crazy stuff about their teeth. And I'm like, they have even more teeth than I thought. They have teeth all over their body. They're just nothing but teeth. But then you mentioned that like the nurse sharks and things that like suck up their food rather than, you know, maybe going to take a, a munch out of it. So is it all sharks that have those like crazy rows of teeth or do like what kind of teeth situations are we looking at for these little coastal shark guys? Hugely diverse, right? So we're looking in some cases at a conveyor belt of pointy teeth. That's what I think most people think of, right? But even then there are different kinds of pointy teeth, right? There are pointy teeth that are designed for snatching. Um, think about like maybe a mako shark's teeth, right? They, they sort of like stick out. They're like a little bit smooth, but thin and pointed. And that's going to be mostly intended for grabbing fast moving things. There are sharks that have cutting teeth, right? Think about a great white's teeth, wider serrated um, tiger sharks are another good example. They're designed to, to cut through prey. And then you have crushing teeth. And in some cases, these animals will have like plates that they use to kind of grind. And then the teeth themselves are, are almost identical sized. They're really tiny. Uh, a lot of rays have this too, where, you know, if, if a ray bites you, it, it doesn't really hurt. I mean, they don't have the equipment, but if they grind down a little bit, same is true for nurse sharks. Uh, people who get bitten by nurse sharks because they've been very stupid. The worst part of that injury is not usually the cut. It's the it's the damage that a nurse shark can do kind of gnawing on your hand or foot. And it's pretty difficult to get them to let go sometimes. Most, most sharks are nibble and flee, but nurse sharks are uniquely stubborn and delightful animals who will sometimes bite down and decide that they're committed. That reminds me of a mantra that Christian likes to say is that if it has a mouth, it can bite. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, and assuming that you can safely handle any wild animal is, is not a smart assumption to make unless you have some skills, experience and training. Actually, just to take us back to the bonnet head quickly, I do I do want to talk a tiny bit more about them because they're quite often caught by fishermen. Um, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if the one you encountered was caught by a fisherman and then just like left in the surf or left on the beach. And actually, that was my first experience with a shark in my life was as a probably seven-year-old. 
uh, on the beach in South Carolina, which is where my great grandparents lived. Some shore based fishermen caught a bonnethead and, and kind of brought it ashore. And there was a huge hubbub on the beach of, you know, people being like, oh my God, there are sharks and like my children are in the ocean. And, you know, <laughs> this thing was like maybe two feet long. And even when I was seven, I looked at the situation and I was like, the danger here is not to the people. Yeah. If there's somebody in the situation who's in trouble, it's that bonnet head. And also the bonnet head, it was there long before your kids. A hundred percent. But also like sharks are incredibly diverse, right? And sharks are everywhere. So the truth is that people rarely get into the ocean without a shark or a ray knowing about it. They've got great senses. They're there. They know you're there. They're avoiding you. They don't want anything (laughs) to do with you. And so, you know, that bonnet head did not represent ever in the entirety of human history, a meaningful risk to anybody's child. They're not capable of doing the damage and they're not interested in doing the damage. You know, the vast majority of shark bites are our mistakes or our self-defense. We have quite a few bites here in Florida associated with surfing beaches, right? And a lot of the time that's small sharks that people are stepping on as they're walking out to wave breaks. And I, I personally, it feels like a little bit unfair to me to describe as an attack an animal biting somebody's foot when they've just been stepped on. That's more of a defense, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe if your kid was a blue crab, then a bonnet head would pose some risk to you. But if, if your child is a human being, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And if you have a blue crab child, I think probably you should seek a professional opinion. <laughs> probably let some scientists know because they're going to be interested. Actually, speaking of babies, I did, before we move on to the ingenuity section, I wanted to talk about shark babies because shark gestation is so crazy to me. Some of them lay eggs. Mm -hmm. Some of them don't lay eggs. Some of them have live babies. What's going on? way more (laughs) tough than that. (laughs) Uh, So reproductively, sharks just, we're we're doing it. We're all over the place. We can come up with a variety of solutions to the problem of producing offspring. You know, some sharks have incredibly short gestation periods. I think for bonnet heads, it's something like four to five months. Some sharks have incredibly nuts gestation periods. I think the frilled shark is the longest gestating vertebrate at three and a half years. Oh no. Yeah. Pregnant for three and a half years. I'm pregnant right now. And if that was like my prognosis was that it was going to be another three years of this, You're like, it would be too much. So a ton of diversity. You're quite right that some species lay eggs externally. If you've ever heard of mermaid purses or seen them, those are usually shark or ray eggs. Some of them lay eggs inside their own bodies and then let those eggs develop internally and give birth to them, but aren't connected to the eggs while they're inside. Huh. So like you lay an egg in your oviduct, it's got a big, uh, what's called a yolk sac, and then your offspring grow from that yolk sac and increase in size and strength inside and then are born alive, but they don't have that placental connection or an umbilical cord that connects them to their mom, right? Their development is happening separately, but mom's body is providing a consistent environment and safety from predation while those offspring develop. In some cases, that even ends with mom feeding you right? Uh, So she can produce unfertilized eggs that her offspring eat inside her oviduct. Uh, Some species of ray produce what's called interuterine milk. It's not very much like mammal milk, um, but it is highly nutritious. It 
lets those offspring put on weight and strength and get bigger. So that's pretty nuts. Yeah. And in some cases it ends in intrauterine cannibalism where within her uteri, most species of shark have two uteri paired. The strongest embryo eats the others before they're born. So mom ends up giving birth to like two really powerful predator pups rather than like a bunch of little piddly pups. They're really getting ahead of the game on natural selection. They're like, you know what? Let's get it out of the way before we're even born. We'll just do it right here, right now. Yeah. Well, and it's important to know around that, that like sharks roll out a mom ready to go. You're a shark. You know how to be a shark. You're out. You're off. You're about it. Mom, when she's giving birth, uh, releases hormones that suppress her appetite so that she's not tempted to munch on baby. Helpful. <laughs> but that's about it in terms of what shark moms are going to do for their offspring once they're born. So being really well-developed when you're born, since you're not going to receive a lot of parental care, you've got to go make your own way. You've got to figure out how to be a successful shark right out the gate is really important. And then there are sharks, and this is incredible, who have that placental connection to their mom right? Wow, really? Mm-hmm. Huh. And so in that case, uh, their reproduction is is pretty similar to that of, of mammals in the sense that mom is uh, offering nutrition and providing all of those other services like respiration and toxin processing that we expect a female mammal to provide to a fetus. Other really cool information, a lot of, of times they've got a bunch of placental connections, right? They've got numerous offspring. Uh, so baby sharks can be born uh, if they are a viviparous species with belly buttons. Aww. On, on sharks, it's like a little bit around the throat rather than down at the belly where ours are placed. But within, within her uterus, usually the uterus is segmented. It provides each individual pup with what's called a, a sarcophagus. Brutal. Well, so one of the reasons you want that is like, A, you could imagine having 15 pups in one uterus, all connected by umbilical cords. You could wind up with like a real ball of shark pups. You don't want to do that. You want to kind of keep them in order. But also if one pup fails to develop properly or dies in the womb, you want the other pups to be protected, right? So we have seen examples of sharks that after after they were caught and dissected, you see a kind of a mummified dead pup in the uterus that because it was contained in that sarcophagus, its siblings were all safe and born safely. Where if they were all sharing the same space, when it died, it might have caused problems for the rest of them. Wow. I think that's so impressive that it was a system that developed so similarly to mammals, but with so little relationship to them. Like that's a really crazy instance of, I think like convergent evolution. Mm -hmm. They're like, we're going to do the same thing, but we have nothing to do with each other. And we don't even know about each other. <laughs> I, I mean, and also like, let's realize they figured it out way before we did. Yeah. So, so they were already doing like placental sort of gestation, like before mammals existed. My knowledge of this particular evolutionary history is not good enough to answer that question. <laughs> sure. uh, but they think that sharks are the first animal to 
undergo internal fertilization. Wow. Sharks are the OGs, man. They've been, they've had it figured out. It's just a good thing that um, humans developed outside of the water so that we don't have to compete with sharks because I think they would have had us. <laughs> we never would have made it <laughs> if we had sharks to compete with. Yeah. No, I mean, and people like to be like, who would win in a fight, like a shark or a puma? And I'm like, well, it depends on where you're hosting this fight. <laughs> If it's like an arena style battleground on level ground, then yeah, the puma is going to win. But you throw that puma in the ocean and you see how it does. So the next category that we like to rate animals on is their ingenuity. And these are behavioral adaptations that let an animal do a good job of maybe solving problems that it encounters on a daily basis. These are things that are not necessarily built into the body, but just things that they do that are clever or that help them out. Um, so what would you give these sharks for ingenuity? I mean, it varies, but I would say, I'm going to say on average, like seven out of 10. Okay. That's not, that's not bad. <laughs> because you don't have to be like, we talked about it. They figured it out really early. So you don't have to be that ingenious when you like already resolved it. They're kind of on autopilot. So, I mean, there are examples of sharks being really smart. And I think that in the next 10, 20 years, we're going to only learn more about uh, shark cognition. And I think that some sharks are, are much more intelligent than we now realize. But there are a lot of species where like they're so well adapted to their environment that they don't spend a ton of time problem solving. If you don't have to, why waste your energy, right? Exactly. On the other hand, little lemon sharks, who are one of the best studied shark models, right? Because Bimini Biological Field Station, where I did some of my earliest training uh, in Bimini Bahamas, is the oldest shark lab in the world, or one of them at least. And um, they mostly study these little juvenile lemons. And they found uh, some really interesting stuff, including that juvenile lemon sharks form lasting friendships. Right. And that tells you some really exciting stuff about cognition. Right. In order to have a friend, you have to be able to individually identify that other animal reliably every time. And you have to be able to remember your previous interactions with it, because otherwise, how can you build a friendship? Right. Think about your friendships. They come from repeated positive interactions. And so initially, when they were studying this, they thought, OK, the explanation for this must be genetic. These animals are more and less closely related to each other. And so you want your genes to be passed down. You're going to be friends, you know, in air quotes, with the animals most closely genetically related to you. So they ran the genetics. And what they found was that there is not a genetic explanation for little wow. women shark friendships. They just, some of them like each other, some of them not so much. Shark friends. I'm in love. I love that so much. <laughs> and they also found that they learn from each other, right? So like a slightly smaller lemon shark tends to like to follow around a lemon shark just a year older than it, just a little bit bigger. I feel like we've all seen this same thing in children, right? <laughs> where they where they learn from a slightly older, more experienced shark, you know, where's the good place to go to hunt? Where's the good place to go to stay safe from predators? And and they kind of build skills and develop from watching each other. And that is a lot more complex intellectually than I think people necessarily expected sharks to be. Yeah, because definitely that's not something that a lot of the educational resources that are out there about sharks, I don't think they focus on the behavior of sharks and like the, the more clever things that they can do sometimes. 
I, but I think that's a common thing with marine life in general. We're always like, ooh, look how different their physical bodies are. But then there's behavioral things that they're doing, too, that's so different from ours, but so interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's a lot more to learn here. Uh, and so I might end up having been proved too conservative on their adaptability. Obviously, it varies a lot. We've talked about how diverse shark species are. So, you know, turns out tiger sharks are pretty adaptable. They're a shark that has, I think, benefited somewhat from some of the environmental changes because they've been able to be so flexible. Other animals, less so. The more specialized of a feeder you are, the more specialized your diet, the harder it is for you to respond to changes in your environment that affect availability. So I think it, I think it varies a lot. But on average, I would say pretty good. I mean, they've been around for such a long time without major changes that like they've got to be able to respond to changing situations fairly well. They've a little bit hit a wall, I would say, with fishing pressure, right? Nothing in more than 400 million years of evolution prepared them for industrial fishing. But other types of environmental change, I think they've proven themselves pretty able to respond to. Yeah, and something that actually way back when we talked about cow nose rays, which are so, just so precious. They They're are so, so blessed. Cool. I love them. Um, and so when we talk about cow nose rays, you know, one of the things that I kind of learned about them was that their long gestation time makes it really hard for their populations to recover. But it also makes it really hard for them to like respond. Like if there's a fast change going on in their environment, it's going to take them a year to make a new baby. And then it's just the one they're cranking out one baby a year. And so it's going to take a long time for them to be able to like respond to those changes. So that I guess that, that gestation time is going to depend like how quickly they're able to adapt to their changes. Yeah. So this is this is going to be like a little bit into the nerdy weeds, but I feel like we're we're going there. Um, Let's get into it. <laughs> uh, in ecology, there we we can kind of describe animals as being either R selected or K selected, right? This and, is one of the very few things I remember from my old biology classes. Hey! I'm so excited. <laughs> So our selected animals uh, tend to be more like prey species. They tend to be animals that can reproduce relatively rapidly. They create a lot of offspring, but every individual offspring requires a very low investment of energy. So think about fish spawning, right? A spawning fish, a spawning teleost fish could release like a, a million eggs in a year. Maybe only one or two of those eggs are realistically going to survive and end up becoming an adult fish. Um, but that's mostly going to be about conditions around them, right? So what's the food availability for your baby fish? What What is the predation threat on your baby fish? And so that's part of the reason that we see a lot of fish populations fluctuate a lot, right? If you have a great year where there's tons of food available and there's not a lot of predation, you can boom very quickly. And for sharks, which are the other, that's much harder. So K-selected species uh, produce many fewer offspring and invest a lot more energy and resources into each individual offspring. So uh, a shark might only have 10 pups every other year, but her, her expectation is that almost all of those pups will survive to adulthood because when she gives birth to them, they are so well-developed. They are a much larger size. They're, they're ready to go. And so you can kind of think of these as like two opposite strategies, right? Both, both of these potential organisms, our shark and our fish, 
are investing similar amounts of energy into creating offspring. You're just dividing by either 10 or a million. And for the the fish that's dividing by a million, the calculus there is that like, okay, most of these will get eaten, but there are so many that at least some will make it. Law of large numbers. (laughs) Right. And for the shark, the investment is like, yeah, okay, there are not that many. And like, maybe it would be better if I were able to produce more, but I'm always making that trade-off, right? Between number and quality. So there are species of shark that produce really pretty much like two pups at a time. And they've made that trade-off of like, my offspring can get much bigger, can be much stronger when it's born, but I can only produce this very small number uh, versus sharks that give birth to 40 or more pups at a time, right? The trade-off that they're making is like, okay, I need to have space inside of myself for these 40 pups, which means they can't be that crazy big, but I get to have more of them. So, you know, every species is kind of making these trade-offs and and seeking what works. But it's impossible for very case-selected species to dramatically ramp up their reproduction, right? They, they're just not capable of doing it. You can't make more because they won't fit inside of you. And you can't necessarily make them more often because your energy budget requires that you have the actual nutrients and and energy to invest in those pups to create them. And so some species of shark have the ability to reproduce pretty quickly. Bonnet heads are a great example. You know, their generation time is like four to five years from birth to being an adult shark that can produce offspring. But the Greenland shark we recently discovered is probably not sexually mature till it's over a hundred. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up the Greenland shark. <laughs> That's wild, right? Yeah. Are there very many other sharks like that? Or is this just a kind of a lone ranger out there? I, I mean, I think the truth is we don't really know. I, I mean, it's, it's very unusual among sharks that we've studied. But the number of shark species that we have really a deep, high quality understanding of their reproductive processes is not that many. So I think that if you get into deep sea and cold water sharks, like it wouldn't surprise me that some of that is going to be pretty nuts. I'm excited for the future on that. But so, you know, even among even among more standard sharks, a lot of them don't reach sexual maturity till 10, 15, 20 years of age. So we're still talking about animals that, you know, not only need to be born and survive that juvenile life stage, but like have a considerable amount of living to do before they can even start contributing to the population. And so sharks can't recover from overfishing nearly as quickly as an our selected species can. Makes sense. We'll talk a little bit more about the impact of fishing on shark conservation in just a couple of minutes. Before we get there, though, I want to kind of like wrap up our ratings with the last category that we use for animals, which is kind of just for funsies. And it's just your opinion. This is aesthetics. So um, what would you score the sharks out of 10 for aesthetics? So I think all sharks are beautiful and I'm prepared (laughs) to die on this hill. But probably like broadly speaking, uh, sharks go from anywhere from about like a zero to about a like 22. I don't know. What's the, <laughs> where, where are we putting the cap on, on out of 10? <laughs> when we talked about the goblin shark, I'm pretty sure we gave it like a two or a four or something like that. So like oh. the goblin shark was kind of our floor. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's probably sharks that are uglier than goblin sharks. And well, I mean, Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, guys. 
<laughs> I'm sure to another specimen, uh, to like a conspecific that is reproductively receptive to that one, like maybe it's beautiful. Maybe those are their own beauty standards, but to the human eye, not so much. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think, fair. Uh, I mean, and and it, it also depends a little bit on like how you're measuring aesthetics. So if you're thinking about like cuteness, then most people don't think sharks are super cute. Although I beg to differ and I will send you a picture of that 38 centimeter nurse shark and you tell me that thing's not cute. Oh, (laughs) but on the other side of that, uh, if you're thinking about aesthetics in terms of design, sharks are so well designed. They nailed it. Uh, we talked about their dermal denticles a little bit, but dermal denticles have been used for everything from designing better swimsuits for Olympic swimmers to designing better ship holes to designing uh, surfaces for operating rooms and hospitals that inhibit bacterial growth. Wow. So it's an amazing piece of design. Whether you think it's beautiful or not is more debatable. (laughs) Form meets function. Exactly. They look like, um, to me, I think most sharks look kind of like an underwater jet plane. It looks like a jet that's just underwater. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and if we think about planes are designed to be aerodynamic, sharks uh, are evolved to be extremely hydrodynamic. Uh, It makes sense that that flow of water or air over them would point to particular shapes. There are obviously some sharks that are not ram ventilators, that are not fast swimmers, that are considerably less hydrodynamic than their more streamlined cousins. There are plenty of derpy looking bottom dwelling sharks who I encourage you all to go investigate because I think many of them are quite adorable. I think that like as far as the most like maybe awe-inspiring, like the most visually beautiful shark, I think the whale sharks got it in the bag because I don't know if you've ever been to the Georgia Aquarium, but the Georgia Aquarium, which I I feel like I talk about this stupid aquarium every episode. And this is the aquarium where they have the whale shark tank. They have this tank that has four whale sharks, but you could spend hours just sitting there watching the whale sharks as just peacefully like swim by and and you can usually see the reflection of their beautiful spots on the water. I've never seen one in the wild, but I would love to. <laughs> Uh, they they are really awe-inspiring. I would say the, the elasmobranch that um, made the biggest impact on me the first time I encountered one would probably be the manta ray. Mm. You know, you read about it, whatever. I was not ready for its size. They, they blew my mind. Ooh, fun, cool fact about manta ray. So we talked about sort of the diverse reproductive strategies that elasmobranchs have. So Mm -hmm. manta rays are an example of animals that develop inside their mother's body, but aren't being fed by her, right? There's no umbilical cord. And it turns out they're ram ventilators, right? They spend their whole lives swimming. They never stop. That's how they breathe. How how do you do that in the womb though, right? You're Mm -hmm. not connected to mom, so she's not breathing for you. And the answer is that they are buccal pumpers while they're in the womb. Oh, and they switch. Why? <laughs> what benefit does that serve? I mean, it, they, that's how they solve the problem of letting baby breathe. Wow. Huh. And you can imagine what a mess it would be to have all of your manta ray babies trying to like ram ventilate inside you. That's too much. That's a lot going on. Oh my gosh, that's so precious. So we, we talked about manta rays way back when, inspired by a visit that we had to the Georgia Aquarium where we were so like awestruck by these manta rays that they had swimming around 
and it prompted me to find a video online of baby manta rays being born. Y'all, it's so cute. They're born with their little wings wrapped around them like a little burrito. Yeah, no, they're like tiny sausage rolls. It's so good. And that's true for most rays. And actually the rays that have barbs are actually born with a sheath on them so that they don't barb mom uh, when they're inside or on the way out. It's very smart. I'm glad they do that. <laughs> they're looking out. Oh my gosh, they're so cute. Just baby stingrays just really get me. It's so perfect. We have like a lot of zoos and stuff around here where you can, they have touch tanks for you to touch stingrays. They're pretty chill. I like their attitude. They're kind of cat-like in that they'll come up to you like on their own terms. They'd be like, mm, you seem all right. And they'll come up to you and let you pet them. And then they swim away. They're like, that's enough. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and if you're too much, they're like, nah, I'm out. Yeah, like you have to kind of play hard to get with them a little bit. I like them. They have a very cat-like attitude. <laughs> so we work with um, yellow stingrays, right, which are a, a tiny, really cool species of ray. They're found throughout sort of the Western Atlantic and Caribbean, but there are only 22 published papers on them. Actually, maybe 23 now. One just came out about them using their uh, magnetic sense to solve mazes. <gasps> Whoa, that's cool. <laughs> but they're they're a really cool little ray, but we'll catch sometimes females that are so pregnant that you can actually like see the pup moving inside the female. Mm. It's really awesome. And so when I was pregnant with my with my first son, like that would be the sort of thing where like sometimes you could look down and you could see my belly moving around and my friends hated it. They said it was the freakiest thing in the world. <laughs> no, uh, I agree. With, with humans, it's like a little bit of a horror movie, but with baby stingrays, it's cool. It's a double standard. <laughs> I think this is the only place where there's an operational double standard that favors stingrays over humans, though. So <laughs> I think you should let them have it. And they're called pups? Yes. Perfect. I love it so much. That's very good. I just needed confirmation. I needed to hear it. It's very, it's really great. I think more that would like definitely help people warm up to sharks a little bit more if they knew that baby sharks were called pups. Obviously, again, don't touch wild animals unless you have a good reason and appropriate training and appropriate permits. But baby sharks are sharks. I know of at least a couple of cases of scientists being bitten by unborn shark pups. Mm. Uh, Dr. Samuel Gruber, who's the founder of Bimini Shark Lab, used to from time to time like assist a female lemon shark as she was giving birth. And at least one of those little guys got a good nip in. Oh, they're not wasting any time. Right. They, uh, But they, they are fully shark from minute one. They're here for it. <laughs> Good for them, honestly. Look at them go. They're standing up for themselves, even as babies. I wish I had the confidence. Look at them go. Um, and I know that that's happened, too, in a couple of dissections of, like, you know, females that died in fishing gear or whatever that were then being scientifically dissected. In at least a few cases, the pups were still alive. Wow. Uh, and and people have gotten nibbled. Oof. Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine? I would I think I would just would have had like a tiny heart attack. That's too spooky. <laughs> so the last thing that we wanted to kind of wrap up by talking about was shark conservation and the impact that human activity is having on the conservation of sharks. And and you've been working in the field, you've been working in South Florida and also in the Caribbean. Um, so I would love to kind of hear your, your thoughts on the relationship between humans and sharks. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, for me, one of the, the biggest problems with the way that we talk about this now is that I feel like blame gets to 
placed a lot on people who rely on sharks to feed their families. And the truth is that solutions that ask some people to starve so that we can conserve wildlife aren't real solutions. That's not an outcome that is either like practical or ethically really okay. So when people think about what we can do to better manage sharks, the the purpose of shark management in the United States is to manage them for the maximum sustainable yield. And that's how we manage all fisheries in this country, right? The idea is that we want to have a healthy population of any fish species while also harvesting the amount that we can without compromising the future health of that population. And I don't disagree with people who say that they don't think sharks should be harvested. I, I think that that's a perfectly reasonable moral position to take. But I I don't think that the place that we should start trying to enforce that is on the people who most depend on them for survival. If you want laws that protect sharks better, you know, push to protect them better in U.S. waters. Although, honestly, sharks in U.S. waters are already pretty well protected while they're here. Or push for other policies that will help sharks survive, right? So sharks rely on mangrove habitats in their juvenile life stages. We have mangroves here in South Florida, but they get cleared all the time as part of development. Advocate for uh, responsibly caught seafood. One of the biggest threats to sharks globally is capture as bycatch in fisheries that are targeting tuna, swordfish, mahi. And so making sure that you know where you're buying the seafood that you eat from and that it was caught responsibly is a big way to help conserve sharks. Thinking about the toxicity of the products that we use um, is another great one. So sharks are towards the top of the that food chain, right? Either apex or mesopredators. When we introduce pollutants into the marine food web, uh, usually those are picked up first by plants, right? Or shellfish, things that are very near the bottom. In sharks, as things move up the food web, they do something called biomagnify. So if you are a piece of zooplankton and you have one unit of mercury in you, and then a small fish has to eat 10 of you to get the energy it needs, it now has 10 pieces of mercury in it, right? And if a slightly larger fish eats 10 of those, it now has 100 pieces of mercury in it. Um, so as you work your way up marine food webs, contamination increases dramatically. And this is a problem for sharks, and it's a problem for uh, dolphins and, and whales from time to time, too, where toxic pollutants will build up in their bodies to the point that it affects their ability to successfully reproduce or potentially affects their survival or well-being. So there's a lot of steps that we can take to help protect sharks ourselves through the choices we make, the things we purchase, the water quality we help contribute to in our communities. And this is true even if you don't live near the ocean, right? Because think about it, all rivers and streams eventually come to us. So making sure that your local stream is clean and healthy does help sharks. We tend to think that our actions are not the problem and that the problem is happening somewhere else. But the reality is that healthy ecosystems rely on the choices that all of us make. And so rather than pushing for shark finning bans, which, you know, obviously have their place, but a lot of people don't realize that shark finning is illegal in the United States already. You know, as a threat to U.S. sharks, it's not a significant one. So what are the things that you could do that would actually help the animals that live in your backyard? And in most cases, those have more to do with like choices you individually are making than what somebody else is doing. 
yeah, even if you think, oh, I don't live near sharks, there's nothing I can do about sharks because they're too far away, like there are still choices that you can make that can help sharks. I mean, and, and anything that you do that helps the environment will help sharks. So, I mean, one important question for us is about climate change, right? And how that will affect sharks. And there's a lot of work being done on that topic. And, you know, preliminary findings show that sharks may shift their habitats in response to changes in global temperature. Um, and that also ocean acidification may mean that it's harder for them to form their denticles or that the denticles they do form are a bit weaker. So we're still figuring out what impacts that will have, but the the steps that you can take to help keep our planet healthy are steps that ultimately help sharks, whether you directly see the link or not. I think that's a message of hope. Like there are things that we can do that anybody can do at just at the consumer level to to help support not just sharks, but all the other cool animals that we have in our ecosystem, even if they're teeny little bugs and stuff all the way from little itty bitty flies all the way up to big, great white sharks. So there's there's a lot of things that we can do to help out. The biggest lie that any of us were ever told was that what we did didn't matter. So like it's a small thing for each of us to choose to stay home or wear a mask right now to help protect each other. It's not the hugest deal in the world for any individual person to stay home. But collectively, it makes a huge difference in the spread of the virus. It's similar in terms of pollution, in terms of the effects that we have on our natural world. If you make better choices, if you pick up just a few pieces of litter every time you're out in nature, does that change the world? I mean, yeah. only only four gum wrappers worth maybe but like making the world four gum wrappers better in a day is still something yeah leave it a better place than you found it i'm left with a feeling of of hope and a feeling of empowerment that there are things that we can do so um as we wrap up i would like to take a second for you to kind of let us know what kind of projects you're working on currently or what kind of work that you're engaged in right now that you think people should know about um and just kind of like where people can keep up with what you're up to so normally i spend uh, about a hundred days a year in the field, uh, working with animals directly. And right now, obviously I'm, I'm not. Um, so I'm right now I'm catching up on writing up a bunch of findings that I haven't had time for. Uh, and that's exciting in its own way. But the thing that I can't wait for is to be back out on the water. So I I'm working on some exciting projects about mating, about reproduction in a couple different shark species in the greater Miami area that I I really want to be out there collecting data on. But if you want to keep up with me, uh, the best places to do that are uh, on Instagram or Twitter. Um, and on both of those, my handle is Dr. Catmack. Is that D-R-C-A-T-M-A-C-K? Just M-A-C. M-A-C. On Twitter, I've got a underscore between Dr. and Catmack because I couldn't get the other. Oh, there's another Catmack out there. I know. But those are great places to keep track of, of what I'm up to. Um, if you're curious about the field training courses that I offer, those are through Field School, which the website is getintothefield.com. Uh, otherwise, you're always welcome to email me. Uh, you can find my email on my website, which is drkatherinemcdonald.com under contact me. And uh, I'm psyched to talk about sharks, especially to small kids. So if there is some small kid listening who wants to talk to a shark scientist, If I can't answer their question, I know someone who can. 
<laughs> we'll get your shark questions answered. Um, I think maybe that's a good way to get the next generation of little budding ecologists and budding zoologists and marine biologists like even more on Team Shark. Yeah, I especially love connecting kids to female scientists because I think when I was small, I didn't have that many female science role models. And I think things have really changed in the decades since that was true, but it means something to be part of that change. Definitely. Oh, I appreciate you so much for taking all this time to talk to us today. This has been a super fun. Like this has been awesome. I feel like I've learned a lot. I feel like we had a great time. So I, I just thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to chat with us about sharks. It's the most fun I've had this week. <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm like, I'm so excited to be like speaking to an adult human being. <laughs> well, I'm like, who doesn't get amped about sharks? Oh my gosh, yes. I'm so excited. And somebody who knows more about sharks, like somebody who has actual answers for my weird shark questions. Like oh, it's not them. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just a thing that's like, I guess I'll just get on Google. It's like I can get an actual, like, thorough informed answer. Although one of the things I love about sharks is that a lot of the time it's like, I don't know. We still gotta find this out. It leaves so many doors open for exploration and there's just like, it's like a, I, I wonder if it's kind of like how it used to feel during like the time before maps were like made for the whole earth and there would be just chunks missing of the map. Yeah, where they'd no, be like, you're like, what's there? And it's just like, who knows? <laughs> Could be anything. So much to learn, but thank you so much for sharing what you have learned and giving us all a little bit of education about sharks today. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.